Running Light Ministry Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org. Yes, we are live on this too. Say something, Peter. Hello. <laughs> hey, you, you're there too. <coughs> Say something again. Hello. Say Test. something more than that. <laughs> Say something more than just the hello. Uh, hello. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> last time, last time I was louder than you. Yeah. 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 So and, is, is it? And usually you're louder than me. The same as yours right now. They. Let's see. This is like a new program, right? Yep. Yeah, they look good. Okay. I think they're good. I think we're good, man. We're ready for the Better Pleasure podcast. All right. Which is awesome, dude. I'm so glad. Uh, it's been fun, dude. We're having a blast talking about um, premarital counseling kind of premarital people that want to get married or people that even are married but they want to know more about what we do in premarital counseling this is kind of the podcast to kind of get involved in that right right yeah so we've been talking about all kinds of things our main scripture is matthew chapter 19 19, yeah yeah so we've been hammering that we're talking about (laughs) divorce we're actually going to finish up divorce on the new testament before we do i just wanted to let people know that um what we what I did this week was I did post a new blog on our Running Light page, so runninglight.org, um, and this one was called Blessed to Give Than to Receive, and I talked, kind of interesting, I talked about semen being given to the woman. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> it's blessed to give than to receive. Isn't that weird? It's a little weird. Yeah. And I, and I, I totally. And I, so, I mean, God, this is crazy. But uh, <laughs> but I thought, too, I thought, man, that that is an interesting picture, huh, of yeah. giving. A bless, you know, and how is it better to mm-hmm. give? And um, so I kind of bring out some biblical points, some principles in that, that it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um so I talk about two things, really, the giving of actually semen to the woman and actually the giving of pleasure um, um, and how those both relate to God. Mm. Yeah. So it's kind of a, you know, one of those weird, weird bow things. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Only Bo would think of these things, right? <laughs> nah, you would too, man. You would too. So, uh, but I, I, wa- I did that and then... Um, there was some other things I wanted to share too. Let me try to remember what was it that I was going to share with you guys. Um, you know, we we have of course the the new workbook. You know, I got everything up on the website so people could check out our website and they can go to lessons and they can go to the workbooks and they can just print out the whole workbook or they can print out every single lesson of the workbook individually. However they want to do it, man, it's done. We're working on a new website, which is cool. I just met with our web web guy, and hey, hopefully that's gonna gonna look cool, look good. Hmm. So, um, oh, you know what? Uh, I'm gonna be going to Pima College pretty soon to do another class. Hmm. Um, where I do, for those that don't know, I do do a teaching at Pima College every semester in the human sexuality course Mm. and it's cool that they get us to come in and do these like talks on pornography i actually did a different presentation this time so um it's kind of a hardcore presentation too man (laughs) it's it's pretty tough it's one of those really really gnarly ones but um i think it's going to be impactful man Mm. i think people are going to be like whoa that's gnarly (laughs) so and uh you know they're always different from 
you know, it's not just like an anti-porn. That's not our style. You know, we don't come off like that, I don't think. Where we're just like, hey, man, we're going to just give you all the anti-porn rhetoric. Here we go. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, we definitely want to have people to think through issues and um, really contemplate, you know, kind of how this stuff affects us and where we're at in life and what the real issues are. And we tend to always come back to the issue of lust and, and uh, that lust in us whether it's for sexual pleasure or whether it's for, you know, riches, things like that, always seem to create in us some kind of separation and hence some kind of divorce. And so last week, getting to our topic, we talked about divorce. We talked about how it was interesting that even in the Garden of Eden, there was a divorce, so to speak. There was a a banishment from the garden. Mm. And and that even Cain was banished from the land. And these things all have the idea of divorce in them, uh, a separation, if you will. Even death itself is like a, a divorce, right? Mm. It's it's a separation from God, mm. you know, and um, which is kind of interesting. But then we saw the allegory in the Old Testament between God being a husband and Israel being a wife. And that divorce was really different than what maybe a lot of people thought. We kind of brought up the idea that divorce isn't so much um, initiated by the person who gives the certificate of divorce. So divorce isn't someone going down to the court and divorcing their spouse. That's not the divorce. Hmm. And that's different than how most people view divorce. That divorce actually in the Old Testament between God divorcing his people which he does, is actually the people divorcing God and God just recognizing that divorce right. through a certificate of divorce. <clears throat> now, we want to get to the New Testament, and and spe- specifically we want to hammer through this Matthew 19 <laughs> section. Right. Because it is, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. Jesus says that if you... Divorce for any reason other than sexual immorality, you commit adultery. And if you marry someone who is divorced, you commit (sighs) adultery. And so we want to kind of touch on that. Just to reiterate to last week, to give people a good update, (laughs) is that last week we did talk through Malachi. And we did mention in Malachi chapter 2 how violence is also something that we can look at as creating a divorce in a marriage. So that was serious, Mm. you know. So a lot of people think it's just adultery, and we're going to have to talk through this issue with Jesus here because Jesus always brings us to these hardcore sections, you know. Yeah. Um, And uh, so maybe we just launch into it, man. Where do you want to start, Peter? Since you're the uh... brains behind the operation. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we'll uh, we'll begin in verse eight of Matthew 19. Jesus said to them, "Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery." Um. So 
several things that Jesus is getting at here. Uh, the first one that I would like to talk about, which is really important, is this word that Jesus uses in verse 9 of sexual immorality. Uh, in the Greek, it's this word porneia, and we talk a lot about porneia in our podcasts. And what porneia is, if you look it up, if you uh, you know have a strong dictionary at home, and you look up what porneia is in the Greek, it uh, the definition literally comes right out of Leviticus chapter 18, when God gives these sexual commandments to his people. And when you read Leviticus 18, you read the kind of things that God is saying to people, like don't have sex with you know, your mom, don't have sex with your dog, don't have sex with your sister, don't have sex with your aunt, don't have sex with someone who's not your wife. You know, And he gives all the sexual commandments that we're to abide by. The penalty for every single one of those commandments is death. That's what was supposed to happen. They were supposed to be stoned to death if you committed porneia. So the very interesting thing that Jesus is getting at here is he's saying that if you commit porneia in the New Testament, it's no longer death, but there's a divorce. And even when Jesus was speaking, this is very relevant for the Jews as well. Because at the time that Jesus is speaking, the Jews could no longer uh, enforce the death penalty. The Romans had taken away their ability to do that. Okay. And so there was an idea that there was actually rabbis around Jesus' time that were saying the same thing, that since we cannot enforce the death penalty, if somebody commits porneia in a marriage, this spouse is able to leave that person. And it almost, in a way, replaced the death penalty of the Old Covenant. So that's a that's one, uh, I think, point that we want to make right. clear to people, and that is that there's a replacement of divorce over the death penalty it seems from what jesus is saying right right um especially when you consider the idea that we in the new covenant we no longer abide by what you would call the legal uh aspects the judicial aspects of the levitical law meaning when you get to the levitical law you have moral aspects of the law you have uh, purity aspects of the law, and you have judicial aspects. And you have even food. Right. And and the food would be kind of more in the purity aspect, where how did the Israelites remain pure before God? And they had all these different laws about, you know, if you have this kind of sickness, you must be baptized like this. And if you uh, get cured from this disease, this is the sacrifice you must offer in the temple. And all things that we do not abide by anymore because Christ himself becomes our purity in the new covenant. Um as well as the kosher laws we don't abide by anymore because, again, Christ himself is our purity before God. Um, the, the other type of law, the judicial laws, we don't abide by anymore because Christians are no longer a country the way the Jews were. When God established Israel as a country, every country needs a constitution. They need laws. They need, they need judges. And so God established that for his people in the book of Leviticus. We don't abide by that anymore because we're not the nation of Israel. We are, obviously, the Christian church is everywhere. We're, in, we're an invisible nation before God. We're in the invisible kingdom of God that is spread out throughout the world. We don't have judicial commands that conform to the Old Testament. We have judicial commands that conform to whatever country we live in at the time. But the third type of law, we have to still abide by, the moral commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder. Uh, these are all commandments that Christians still must abide by 
now that we are in the new covenant. When Jesus is giving this, what he's saying is sexual morality still applies, right? We as Christians, we don't throw out sexual morality because we're still to abide by the moral commandments of the old covenant. However, the judicial penalty for sexual morality is different uh, for us. Yeah, and it's not, it's, it's not only different for us. Even in the Old Testament, the death penalty you don't see used in a commonality when it comes to the sin of adultery. Right. It's kind of interesting. God even t- tells the Joshua to go into the land, the promised land. He tells him to wipe out all the inhabitants of that land because of their, in a sense, immoral filth and what was happening. There were giants in the land. There were all kinds of interesting things going on. I don't know what kind of genetic things were happening, <laughs> but man, it was crazy. There's sections of... Um, the book of Judges, there's sections of Joshua. Um, you can uh, look at these and, and they'll have First uh, Samuel is another great ex- example where it talks about David's conquering of these giant races in the land. Very interesting yeah. um, what was happening there. Of course, they were pagan and they were told to wipe them out because of these these atrocities that they were doing. Of course, they were sacrificing their children to Molech. Um, they were doing incredible um, porn practices, if you will, that was common. Um, the The link between the Old Testament pagan world sexually and porn is actually quite quite um, equal, right? You know, because there is uh, in today's porn, it's always like, "Hey, I did your dad," or you know, we step mothers, you know, you know, let's have sex with stepmothers. There's there's always an incest, really strong incest genre in pornography. Um, there's even, um, you know, you look at the, the most heinous kind of pornography that's out there today, and it's certainly hentai. And but you get into the bestiality part of hentai, which is very common. You got alien sex, demon sex. Um, really Nephilim sex, I mean, which is really odd. They have that. Um, and it's like, you know, you really just go, holy Toledo, man, this stuff's crazy. Um, so there's a link there. Um, but we don't see what we don't see in the old Testament is these instances where King David, maybe, or Solomon or Judah, these people committing these acts of sexual immorality and they being put to death. Hmm. So you don't see that. Yeah. God certainly gets really heavy handed on his people for doing what the pagan world did in the land before Israel. And even Israel goes even further in their debauchery, if you will. And God boots them out of the land it says, okay, fine. You know, I booted the last people out of the land. I can do the same to you. And he boots them out of the land too. But so you don't see the, you see a lot of mercy in the Old Testament too, where even all the people in the land that were pagan did not get taken out. Right. You know, there was a whole, I think it was the Gibeonites or yeah, maybe. Yeah, Gibeonites were left alive. They were left alive. <laughs> yeah. They were. They made it. a little backdoor deal <laughs> with the Israelites. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, so it, it is. Yeah, it is always interesting to see God's mercy, and you see that, and and a lot of 
um, different uh, translators of the Bible, the Old Testament, commentators of the Old Testament have described how a lot of times the Old Testament will use hyperbole to describe things. So for instance, you'll see times in the book of Joshua where it will say, and then Joshua put all of them to the sword and they all were killed. And then the very next verse, it says like, and these people continue to live with Israel till Joshua died. And you're like, well, what's going on there? You know, did Joshua really kill everyone or are they still living with him? And the answer is like, well, it's, it's kind of hyperbole. It's kind of exaggeration literature, uh, much the same way that if, you know, we had a football game today and uh, I don't know why I don't even know football's head. We say it was now. packed. Maybe. Yeah. We'll say it's packed or we'll say like, oh man, we crushed them or we destroyed them or something like that. Well, it's like, is anyone really dying there? No, no, no one's really getting crushed. You're just you're using that kind of speech to kind of pump up your team in a way, mm. and that's that's kind of what we see in the Old Testament. And it's interesting how God does show mercy to His people in these ways, uh, and and it also in in relevance to our talk, uh, what it shows and what it suggests to us is just because a sexual morality happens in a marriage. Does that mean that you must divorce someone? In the same way, in the Old Covenant, if someone commits sexual immorality, does that mean that you have to kill them? That the judges are like, hands are tied, it's capital offense, you're dead. You know, and the, obviously the answer is no. Sometimes mercy is shown, and yet sometimes mercy isn't. Like, for instance, in the book of Numbers, where you have that dude that runs into the temple with a javelin. Yeah, hardcore and, section. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, spears two people while they're having sex in the temple. It was like a hardcore uh thing that's going on so so it's like obviously and that guy was commemorated and that guy was commemorated god's like yeah dude you're zealous family, for my, i think for he my said house. like your family's gonna always be like serving in the <laughs> temple or something like that right yeah yeah zeal for my house is eating you up yeah, yeah. and the, the guy went in so obviously when we're talking about these commandments sometimes there there is a gray area meaning it's not like just if someone commits sexual morality you as a wife, if your husband ever cheats on you, you must divorce them. Right. Period. There's no gray there. You have to do it. It's the commandment of God. Mm -hmm. um, what Jesus is getting at here, much like what the old covenant was getting at, is that that is an allowable punishment for a particular offense. But sometimes mercy goes over that. So what instances can we say that mercy would go over that kind of judgment. And this is going to feed a lot into what we were talking about last week. And that is the idea that what Jesus is saying here is that God doesn't want it, right? God does not want divorce. However, there are times where divorce is committed by the party that is making the offense. And sometimes divorce becomes necessary. So meaning this, if let's say you have King David, or you have Judah, or you have these other people who did heinous sexual acts within the Old Covenant. It's like, what? why did God show mercy to them, but he did not show mercy to these other people that were committing these sexual acts? And honestly, like when you read the stories, not really a whole lot of info is given to us about why exactly. But in essence, what we see is we see that the difference seems to be in that God uh, sees that there is effort, uh, meaning that there's change. They're not getting worse. They're getting better. With David, for instance, 
Did he ever fully repent of his sexual morality? No, right? At the end of his life, he still is committing sexual morality. However, was there change in David's life when it came to his sexual morality? Yes, there was. There was marked improvement by the end of his life. Yeah, he still was, the sin you're talking about is he's still in polygamy. Right. It's not like he wakes up and goes, hey, I'm denying my polygamy or anything like that, or I'm, I'm repenting of that. Right. And, and depending on how hardcore you want to get, David had concubines, and you can consider concubinage to be adultery because these women are not your wives. They're, they're slaves that you would have, right. that you have intercourse with. And though even if we argue in the culture back then they were a sign of, of second-class marital yeah. um, <laughs> relations with the husband, right. it still, it's, it still doesn't yeah. cut it. <laughs> it still doesn't exactly <laughs> Because we still, have, it, we still yeah. have the problem with God made him at the beginning, male and female, Adam and Eve, right. one man, one woman. Right. And so concubines, no matter how we look at that, because I've seen a lot of people go, no, it was okay, you know, in their commentaries. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, try to brush it off as some kind of, thing but uh good social <laughs> things back then but yeah. and i think it was a biblical commentator named robert alter uh he he said anyone who thinks that god approves of polygamy or concubinage in the old testament has not yet learned how to read and what he means is that like whenever you read about someone who has concubines or has multiple wives in the old testament their life is a wreck they don't have a good marriage. Their yeah. marriage is terrible, right? Yeah. Their lives are just a complete and utter wreck. Absolutely. So it's definitely not an approval from God. Hey, let me go over a couple words with you guys. If you look at Matthew 19 and you read this section in verse um, eight, nine, and eight and nine, and when it's using two words, and we just want to look at these in the Greek real quick. One of them is is sexual immorality. You mentioned that, porneia. The other one, though, is different, which is kind of interesting. Um, the word for adultery, which is this word that's called um, M-O-I-C-H-A-O. And do you know how to pronounce that? I don't know how to exactly pronounce that. Uh, Where is it? Right there. Uh, Mokeo. Mokeo. Um yeah, but these are these are words that are used in different ways throughout the Bible and in the New Testament. When you look at the New Testament, you'll see that um, one of them is used uh, like in you know if a woman uh, you know adultery something you know one's considered adultery a strict idea of cheating on your spouse. Right. And the other one's used in this real big, wide-range picture of all these sexual deviances that are rooted in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 18. Right. You know, right. so so in the New Testament, you see um, both both words being used. So sometimes we kind of associate them both in the same. Right. But how I look at it is... When Jesus is in this section and he says that, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery, adultery is a part of sexual immorality. So sexual immorality is the big and adultery is just one of the ways that you can commit sexual immorality. Right. Now, what's interesting to me, Peter, is that Jesus says, he doesn't say, let's say what he doesn't say. 
He doesn't say, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for adultery, hmm. right, commits um, sexual immorality. Right. Instead, he says, anyone, uh, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. Hmm. So w what do you think about that? Wh why, di why didn't he say, why didn't he use the word adultery? Like, why does he use the word sexual immorality? Because it's. It's such a broad word, biblically. I mean, I mean, why do you think he does that? Uh, my personal belief is that Jesus used probably the most intense word he could have picked to the Jewish mind mm -hmm. uh, to denote the seriousness of the covenant that he's talking about. Where again, the Jewish mind would equate sexual morality with stoning to death, right? Mm -hmm. That's what happens to someone who commits sexual morality. They're stoned to death. Um, whereas adultery would not have been such a loaded term. It's still a pretty loaded term, but it's not as loaded as the word sexual morality. And I think that there's actually evidence of that in the response of the disciples in verse 10, where the disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, is it not better to not marry? So the disciples, when they hear Jesus's standards for this is, how, this is what you can do if you're gonna leave a marriage, this is the only way you can, that exception clause, that it was such an intense thing for the disciples. They're like, I don't know if I want to get married. I don't know if I want to commit to someone if that's the only way out. And Jesus' response to them is kind of funny. He's like, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't, right? You know, maybe maybe you should just be single for the rest of your life. You right. know, just do it that way. And uh, that's, that's kind of how we have to look at it. It's like Jesus is setting the standards so high of saying, like, when you make a commitment to someone, it is for life. It is for life. It is not supposed to be, I, I'm making this for now, but we'll see how I feel in 10 years. It's, I am going to, till death do us part. And I mean that. And sexual morality was such a loaded term that it's like, man, if someone actually committed, like, a sexual morality act against you, that's so intense for the Jewish mind that it would actually result in that person dying. Um, you'd be like, okay, well, that's not saying that, oh, I'm just unhappy with my spouse or, you know, like, oh, well, you know, she's put on a couple pounds or, you know, she's kind of a jerk to me sometimes or whatever. This is like, no, this is very, very serious language that Jesus is using with them. Mm, that's, that's, that's a good point. You know, the word in the Greek for fornication or sexual immorality, it's illicit sexual intercourse in general. Um, and of course, Luke are speaking to the Jews, the Levit Leviticus 18 sexual prohibitions would be a part of that. Right. It, it, it's interesting to note that because some people you say, oh, well, the broad word is used, meaning meaning Jesus uses this term sexual immorality, porneia, really broad. So, hey, you know, my wife's viewed porn. She's out. You know, that's 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 a situation for divorce. Right. Or, you know, my husband, you know, lust after other people. Um, that's a situation for divorce because, hey, let's face it. Jesus said, right. If yeah. you if you look at a woman in a lustful way or you look at a man in a lustful way, therefore you commit adultery already. Right. You know, so there therefore, you know, you know, what do you how do you answer that? Well, how I answer that is I would say, well, Jesus also said that if you have anger in your heart towards someone, you've already committed murder. But I have yet to see a Christian go into a court of law and say, I've committed murder because I hated my boss. 
you know, the when we read those sections, Jesus is saying what he's trying to get at is the idea that before God, when you're sinning in your heart, it's the same as sinning. People were excusing their actions by saying, well, I didn't act on it, right? I'm lusting after this girl, but I didn't act on it, so whatever. Or I hate this person, but I'm not actually hitting them. I'm not actually killing them. Jesus is saying, no, that's still sin, right? You're still doing it in your heart. And so before God, it's still a sin. Mm-hmm. And before God, all sin is sin in one sense, in the fact that all sin separates us from God. The wages of sin is death. However, the argument that since all sin is sin, then every sin is on the same level is just totally garbage. You know, you can't say that. Um, let me give you just a physical example, then I'll move it back into the Bible. Physically, if I said, like, what would you rather? Would you rather have someone bury you alive or would you rather die in your sleep of something painless? Every single person would say, oh, I'd rather die of something painless in my sleep. It's like, well, they both lead to death. So what's the difference? Obviously, we in our minds know that even though they both lead to death, there is one that's worse than the other. In the same way, all sin leads to death, but we in our minds know that one is worse than another. Of course it's worse if I go on and actually kill someone as opposed to just hate them in my heart. Mm -hmm. Of course it's a worse thing if I lust after a girl as opposed to going out and actually raping her, you know, or, or committing adultery with her. Of course there's a distinction. You can't say all sin is sin in that in that weird context. And again, in Leviticus, you could go through Leviticus all you want. You're not going to find a single part in Leviticus that has any amount of judicial punishment for someone lusting in their heart. All right. Is it wrong before God? Yes. But is there judicial punishment for it? No. Right. And, and really what 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 is happening and what, what the reason why Jesus is saying that in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, if you look at a woman, is there is a a rooting out, a revealing of of our fallenness that Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on, on the Mount. Right. And uh, of course, at the end of it, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he wasn't joking that that's what our, our Father's desire is for us, is is to be perfect. And so he will not be satisfied with anything other than perfection. And so he's always weeding it out. And in order to do that, in order for us to allow and to say, hey, God, we want to, you know, have you do this weeding out process. We need to recognize just how yucky we are inside. How sinful we are. Yeah. Yeah, And so he certainly, Jesus does a great job of saying, (laughs) of showing that in that section for sure. Because every time I read the Sermon on the Mount, it hands down, man. I mean, you know, there's always things where you go, "Ah, nope, (laughs) I'm not there. I think it was Mark Twain who said that he had nightmares of the Bible resting on his chest and bearing a hole into his heart. So it's like, so Mark Twain is obviously a dude when he read the Sermon on the Mount, he got it. Yeah. And uh, that's important to understand that Jesus is showing our our nakedness and our desolation without his salvation, without a sacrifice uh, before God. Um, Another important distinction when someone says that, like, oh, well, you know, my husband lusted in his heart, so therefore I should be able to divorce him. Mm -hmm. Um, It's recognized in the Bible that there are consequences that are lesser, but are still consequences. And what I mean by that is like when someone did something in the old covenant, it's not like the death penalty was the only penalty that Jesus, that God allowed, right? He allowed other penalties to happen. 
And in the new covenant, when we're looking at this idea of sexual morality, when we're looking at the idea of marriage, other consequences can happen to someone in a marriage before divorce. Meaning you don't have to look at it and be like, you know, my my husband is, uh, you know, let's say my husband is viewing porn every day and he doesn't seem to care. And I've talked to him about it and he says he doesn't want to get help. But, you know, he hasn't cheated on me, so therefore I can't divorce him. Or my husband's gambling all of our money away and has a serious gambling addiction, but he hasn't cheated on me. He hasn't done anything sexual, so therefore I can't divorce him. It's like, okay, well, again, we can we can talk about, you know, there's a, there's a lot of minutia there of thinking like, okay, well, you know, have they violated the covenant? Have they broken the covenant in some way? And there's t- things to talk about. But at the end of the day, what you need to look at is, are there consequences that you can level against your husband that aren't necessarily divorce? Or are there consequences that I can level against my wife that aren't necessarily divorce? And the answer is absolutely. Of course you can. Um, you can create boundaries, right? So if I'm a husband and my wife has a gambling addiction and she's spending all of her money, is it okay for me to put up financial boundaries around her and say, like, look, honey, you're not going to have access to these bank accounts, right? That's a consequence of your actions. That's okay for me to do. I'm not divorcing her, but those are consequences. Um, in the same way, if if I was doing some horrible sin, my wife can go and follow Matthew 18. She could go to the church. She could talk to people about it. There could be consequences that way. There could be separation consequences. There there are multiple other consequences that can happen within a marriage. But the importance of those consequences is that they're always attempting to repair the damage that's been done. They're not just saying like, my wife sucks, so therefore I'm doing this to her because she deserves it. Hmm. Um, right. The consequences, just like as a parent, when you discipline your kid, you're not saying my kid's a little rat, you know, so therefore I'm going to spank him because I hate him. You know, no, you discipline your kid in hopes that the kid learns from their actions and changes. Um, that's how marriage is supposed to work. We should always be working towards greater intimacy, not lesser. Hmm. So those consequences help in that. Okay. So is there anything else you want to mention about the idea of, I tell you that anyone divorces his wife except for pornea? Yeah. No, nothing, nothing else there. Okay. Then let's move on to, um, and marries another woman commits adultery hmm. because now it seems like Jesus is saying that if you marry a divorced woman, you commit adultery. Now, let me put my take on this, and then you can kind of go from there. Yeah, okay. Okay. And that is, we. I always have to remember that, that any remarriage, in a sense, misses the mark of what God intended. Right. I know that's hard to hear, but just hear, hear me out on that. And that is, God intended, what Jesus is saying here is that, from the beginning, this is not how it was. Hmm. Adam and Eve, from the beginning, God intended one man, one woman for life. So anything other than that is a distortion of what God intended, and therefore it misses the mark. Hmm. So with that in mind, in that sense, I could say that any remarriage is a missing of the mark because that's not what God intended. So I don't have too much of a problem looking at 
what Jesus is saying from that sense. Whoever marries a woman who has been divorced commits adultery. Is there any other rendering that you know of in the Greek for this passage? Because this is Matthew's the only one where we have the exception clause. Right. And and if we just had Luke and Mark, right. we wouldn't have the exception clause. So if someone was reading Luke in the ancient world and they didn't have Matthew, or if they just had Mark, which was the earliest gospel written, most scholars believe, and they didn't have Matthew, they would they wouldn't even have that exception clause. Right. I mean, they would read Jesus and they would be like, wow, there is, if you marry a divorced woman, you commit adultery. Right. Is there any other rendering that you know of in, in the Greek that would help us to maybe change our interpretation of that a little bit? So um, I absolutely agree with you. I think that that is one of the major things that he's getting at that if you marry a divorced woman, something wrong has happened. Um, the only uh, obvious exception to that, that is very clear within the Old Testament and the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this, is if there's a death, right? So if you're a widow and you remarry, obviously that bums God out that a death happened in your life. That's not what he would want for you, but um, in essence, he's allowed it. And so, yeah, Romans Romans chapter seven, the very beginning of that is a really good passage that says you're bound to the law of your of marital law with your spouse unless that covenant is 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 also dead at the moment someone dies. Right, right. And then you're free. It says to marry another. And you're free to marry another. So it's very clear within the Old and the New Testament that if a death happens, if a widow is there, you do not have to feel guilty at all about remarrying. Right. There, there's no there should be no guilt in your heart about remarrying another person. Um, but the the other way to look at it when it comes to divorce. Right. So not we're not talking about widows right now. We're talking about divorced couples. A way that you can look at it is just as when Jesus is saying that God presides over marriage. So God is the one who determines whether a marriage is a marriage, not the state and not people. And we talked about this a little bit last week, that God is actually the one that so is sovereign over marital covenants that he could actually say when a marriage is broken, regardless of what the state says. So meaning God could look at certain marriages and say, those people are divorced, even though legally they're still married. Right. And in the same way, God could look at two people and say, those two people are married, even though the state says that they're not married. A good example of that would be back in unfortunate time in American history when Africans were turned into slaves. Uh, in that time, a lot of slaves, it was illegal for them to get married, but a lot of slaves would still get married and they would have a ceremony called jumping over the broom. Now, obviously the state did not sanction that marriage. They weren't married in the eyes of the country, but in God's eyes, they're married, right? These two people are committed to each other. They love each other and they, they're, they're wanting to live out their lives serving God. Right? So obviously God recognizes that marriage, even though the state doesn't. And what Jesus might be saying here, what he might be getting at is if I wake up tomorrow and I'm just like, you know what? My wife's just not doing it for me anymore. I'm just going to divorce her. God will hold me to my original vows. Meaning if I just 
divorced my wife for no reason. I'm just like, Emma, you know what? I'm just not feeling it. I don't want to stay true to our marital vows. <laughs> I'm just not and feeling just, it. <laughs> that's <laughs> just not feeling it anymore. Just not brother. feeling it anymore. I don't think you're the one, you know, and I divorce her and then I remarry somebody else. In a sense, when I have sex with that girl, God could be looking at me saying, you're committing adultery. You, even though you're married to this woman and you've done it the quote unquote right way, let's say we never had sex outside of marriage and we get married, God would still be looking at what I'm doing with that girl as sinful, as wrong, um, because I left my wife for an unbiblical reason. Right. And now I'm marrying another and she's taking her place. Right. And it brings up a lot of interesting questions. One of them we need to answer at some point in the podcast is that many people who are married, remarried, when they when they start maybe thinking about this heavy duty topic, they might hear something like what we're talking about and go, oh, my gosh, what I did missed the mark. And so should I go back to the first husband? You know, and I always tell people, no, (laughs) just stay in the covenant you're in. Right. I think how I've heard I've heard Piper say this before is that, yes, there was a missing of the mark. Right. You know, but it is a covenant. Right. You did make vows and you entered into a covenant. And, it, you know, of course, remarriage is not what God intended with Adam and Eve. Right. Um, But there's wonderful mercy and grace with God. And you made those vows, and so hold fast to them. Right. It's interesting that the context of Matthew 19 is Deuteronomy 24. Mm. This is what Jesus and the Pharisees are arguing over. Mm. So let's see if we can get some light into this topic that we're talking about right now with remarriage and all that from this from this section. Mm. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Hmm. What do you think about that? (laughs) It's an interesting law. Yeah, it's an interesting law basically saying that if you divorce a woman, you cannot remarry her in essence in the old covenant. Um, if you if you really think about it, it makes a whole lot of sense. Let me just let me just say this because um, for a while in the Middle East, this was a practice. It's called muta, and the Arabs practiced it under Muhammad. And what it was is it was a way to get around prostitution. So basically, they're saying prostitution's obviously wrong. But what if I marry a girl, have sex with her, then divorce her that same day? And then just come back the next day and marry her and divorce her, right? Marry her, have sex with her, and then divorce her again. That's so, what I've, I've heard that's called, um, it, what you say? Mota. Now, I, I've heard it, uh, it's like a temporary marriage. Yeah, temporary or, marriage. Yeah, that's right. they do it in Africa, too. That's right. That's right. So it's like everywhere that Islam has gone, it's it's become that's, like a staple. Yeah. Hey, right on. Yeah, because that was like, it was a in that area of Arabia, it was a practice, right? Because um, basically when you have this idea 
of at the time the Israelites were there, it was not a practice. And the reason why is because people just had sex with whoever. But once you get this covenant going where God's saying you have to marry people before you have sex with them, people would wisely think a lot of skeezy men would think like, I can think of a way around that. Right. I could just marry this girl have sex with her, divorce her, marry this girl, have sex with her, divorce her, then go back, marry that girl, have sex with her, divorce her, right? And I could just, I go around and I could actually, in essence, have prostitution, right? I can have sex with as many girls as I want. So God actually puts this law in there as a protection for women of saying, if you divorce a girl, you cannot just go back and marry her. But in in relevance to what we're talking about today, uh, I think you could just kind of land on this. Two wrongs don't make a right. So if I have divorced my first wife for wrong reasons and I've remarried for wrong reasons and now me and her are in a relationship and even though it was sinful in the beginning and both of us come to realize we were wrong we should have done that and we repent me divorcing that wife is not going to make it better that's such a hard statement to hear yeah you know I mean I am not remarried i am not i am married and um but i know many people that are remarried and as a minister you know one of the difficulties is is do i do another remarriage do i do a remarriage and many people i don't think really can have that kind of unbiased look at at that passage in matthew 19 and be like hey you know my my second marriage was it did miss the mark Mm -hmm. meaning i i probably should have stayed single you know and you know just wanted to glorify god in that Mm -hmm. you know um instead you know you know that's that's just hard a lot of people don't don't see that yeah now Let me just go back into Matthew 19 and read this again. It says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for unmarital unfaithfulness, sexual immorality. Now, remember, Deuteronomy 24 is being referred to here. This woman obviously is not being divorced for sexual immorality in Deuteronomy 24. Because if she was being sexually immoral, she would be put to death. She'd be killed, yeah. She'd be killed. Now, what we have to understand, and I think this is really important, is that when sexual immorality has been committed within the first marriage, within the marriage covenant, then in the Old Testament social law of Israel, there would be a death. And then upon the death, there would be the opportunity for remarriage. Hmm. If we were to take what we said at the beginning of the podcast, cast the equivalent that divorce is the equivalent new testament divorce is the equivalent to old testament death death then we would also have to assume in that kind of interpretation is that the remarriage is also okay right because in the old testament covenant you would be able to remarry right uh because of marital unfaithfulness because there would be a death right so sometimes in counseling this is this is a caveat for all you pastors out there sometimes when you're when you're counseling someone who is in a marriage 
and they um, don't think they can remarry. Or, or you're talking to maybe a woman or a man who don't don't think they can remarry, right? Because they go, you know, man, I just I, I think it's wrong to remarry. My my husband's or my wife's still alive. Um, yeah, they did cheat on me, but I just don't feel it's right. Sometimes I'll say, well, hey, in the Old Testament, they would be put to death, <laughs> and you you'd know? be free, and you'd be free to marry. <laughs> you'd do whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know, where I love the heart behind the person who's saying, hey, you know, maybe there's a hope, yeah. you know, an opportunity or something like that. But, but there, but there's that equal thing going on, right? That equivalence, don't you think? We're kind of touching on that, yeah, a little yeah. bit. I do believe that. So I. As a pastor, my own personal conscience is in the event of what I would call either a biblical divorce, meaning someone had a previous relationship where they were being physically abused or cheated on repetitively, and a, phys- and a biblical divorce happened, I would say I don't, I don't really see any moral, like I, as, a, as a person, as a, as a pastor counseling that person, I would have no uh, conscience against telling them it's okay to remarry. Uh, the same way I would have no conscience against telling a widow it's okay to remarry. Those are those are pretty black and white for me. However, if I was again, if I was counseling someone who said, you know, like what happened with your previous marriage, and they're just like, well, you know, just didn't work. You know, I just didn't like that person. You know, or you know, we fell out of love, or you know, they they were kind of a jerk. You know, and they just that was it. Um, in that situation, then there would be a little bit of conscience in me of like. Well, you know, is there a possibility of reconciliation? You know, can that marriage be salvaged? You know, where's and that they go, at? no, it can't be salvaged. But I, I don't want to be single. Um, and you know, there's always the comments of, well, we didn't get married, you know, <laughs> under the covenant of God. Right. So therefore, you know, can't we do this again? You know, God's way. Yeah. Um, where I've seen that excuse over the years too. Right. And it's very difficult. You know, a lot of people are scared to be single. Right. Um, um, let me get back to this Matthew 19. So if someone marries a woman who's divorced, is that adultery? Right. I, I, again, I would say the caveat is why is she divorced? Being, is she divorced because, again, some sort of infidelity or something like that happened that would be biblical then there would be really no 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 real problems with that but if if it is just again it was just like i just divorced him you know or something like that um then there's a lot of gray is what i would say i I, there's no in that instance there's no like black and white of just like absolutely not you know if you divorce for unbiblical reasons you need to reconcile no matter what um, I would say that there is a lot of gray there. There's a lot. I would need to know the exact specific uh, causes, the exact specific things that are going on in the in the life of the ex, as well as the life of the person that's talking to me. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot to go into that. Yeah. Verse three of Romans seven. This is interesting. Hear this. It says, so then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. Right. So in the culture Paul is writing, you get the idea that if a woman marries another man, it seems like for anything. Right. If she marries another man, 
regardless of the circumstances. Right. If she marries another man and that husband, that first, her initial husband is still alive, she is seen as an adulteress. Yeah. You know, which, which what we're saying is that, well, no, if a woman, if a woman marries another man and her husband, her first husband still is alive under the, what that escape clause gives us is that there's some reason that we have to find out about that makes it legit the second marriage right um that she can remarry and you know you could see how i could see how jesus being god could see this all under the umbrella as missing the mark i hope right. people can, are getting that out of the podcast is that th- this becomes such a uh muddled situation that it seems like it all misses the mark of what God intended. Right. Right. And certainly it seems like what Jesus seems to be driving home in Matthew 19 is that Mary or the way his disciples took it anyway, is that what Jesus is saying is very, very strict. Right. And the ideal, not the real, let me get that really clear. The ideal, and Jesus is God, so Jesus can't compromise the ideal at all. And so you have to remember that whenever you're looking at Jesus and what he's saying, he's God. And so he's always going to be on the high moral plane. He can't compromise at all. And that's what the New Testament writers are doing too. They're They're always, because they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they're always declaring the ideal, not the real. Right. So flee youthful lust. That's the ideal. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's not the real. Yeah. It's the ideal. You know, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality. Hmm. You know, and there's always the preacher that goes, let there not even be a hint. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you're like, ah, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're, everybody's freaking out. Right. But that's the ideal. Yeah. You know, it's not the real, meaning we're working through the real you know, to get to the ideal. And so Jesus is laying down this really intense ideal, Peter. You know, and again, I always come back to, not everybody had the book of Matthew. Right. And so those people who didn't have the book of Matthew, they really, they really got, got it where they were like, wow, Jesus is being as hardcore as you can get. You know, so to me, you know, I have to look at Matthew 19 as the ideal of God, you know, and everything else falls under is uh, is in this tier below that ideal. And it seems to me that that God really wants to teach us so many things about our lives um, even when we're single, you know, um, instead of just jumping into marriage, um, as the people were doing, obviously in the book of Deuteronomy, yeah, because they're passing this girl on and on and on, right? And even in Jesus's day, where people think everything is just so loosely done, 
um, where, let's face it, if, if Jesus was really being just, if we just took his words just as it said, and he who married a divorced woman is committing adultery, and you really, really believe that, hmm. wow. I mean, I don't think, I think people would really think of through that, like, you know, do I really want to marry a divorced woman? And, you know, does that put a divorced person, whether it's a man or a female, does it put them as the victim? Hmm. You know, if they're divorced, and I don't think Jesus was getting at that. I don't think he was, you know, because the other way I'm, I'm, I'm just, so you guys know what I'm thinking is that sometimes a person's divorced for a wrong reason. You know, like, I just don't like you no more, so I'm divorcing you. So now she's divorced. So now whoever marries her, or no one's going to want her anymore because she's divorced. Right. I don't think Jesus was saying that. Like, hey, you know, single out the divorced people, and now they're they're second-class citizens to the society. Right. You know, um, you know, I can't see Jesus going that route no. with that. No, I think the main thing he's getting at is like what you already said. It's just the the high ideal of marriage from God's perspective and putting it at this place. Because if it's not, if marriage isn't at that ideal, then it is something that is just, it's just transitory. It's just blasé. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm married now, but I might not be. You know, like that's that's kind of the ideal that you get from our culture. But the ideal that Jesus is laying out is he's saying, no, the intent of marriage is for life. You shouldn't be looking at escape clauses. And for the most part, the majority of people in our culture who divorce, Christian and non, by the way, the reason why they divorce is to remarry. I mean, the reason why they want to end their current marriage That's a good point. is so that they can have another marriage. So many people that do want to divorce really want to be in another relationship with another person. Right, right. And I've, I've actually heard that from Christians before, you know, where they'll be separated from someone for years. And then they're like, oh, I'm divorcing them. And it's like, why? And then you find out that they're dating someone else already. So there's know? already like an adultery yeah, going on. there's already like an adultery. Like, well, we haven't had sex yet. We were just talking, you know. And, and in reality, the, the heart behind the divorce is I want to be with that person and I'm making it, quote unquote, kosher by divorcing my husband. And then in order to really Bible it up, I'm going to come up with these ideas that he's committed heart adultery against me and he's done this and he's already violated the covenant and therefore it's okay for me to divorce him uh, biblically. When in reality, the heart behind the whole thing was just, I want to remarry. When if I took seriously what Jesus is saying, then I would come to the same conclusion as the disciples of like, my gosh, you know, like marriage is very, very intense and hardcore. And if there is a divorce, then singleness might be the way to go, you know, and, and we've talked about the, the different ideas of that. But um, and I like how the NIV puts this because it's a little different than the King James, yeah. where it says, I tell you that whoever divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery, meaning it, it puts the adultery sin on the person who's re, who's who's entering into the marriage with a woman. Right. It doesn't put the sin on the woman who's marrying the man who's left the other woman. Right. Does that make sense? It yeah. makes it really clear. Yeah. That it's in in this D Deuteronomy 24 context. Right. So that if I divorce my wife and I marry the other woman, I am the one committing the wrong. 
You're right. the one committing adultery. I'm the one committing adultery. Where it's like, you know, if I divorce my wife for no reason, you know, then she's, in essence, she's a victim of my sin. You know, yeah. where I'm the one that's sinning against her in that moment. Yeah. And yeah. me even going with this other woman, um, depending on the level that she knows about my unfaithfulness and things I've done, she, in essence, is also kind of a victim of my sin yeah. in, that, in that essence. That's right. Now, the, let's talk a little bit about the response. I know it's a longer podcast, but so what? It's a good topic. <laughs> um, let's talk about the response. The disciples hear what Jesus says. They say to him, not everybody can accept this word. Or first of all, they say to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Mm-hmm. Okay, so from that response, what do you get? Right. So then Jesus responds to them and says, all cannot accept the saying but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's wombs, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He was able to accept it, let him accept it. Now Jesus here switches gears and starts talking about singleness, meaning if you are not ready to commit to someone and say, I am committing to you with the ideal of what Jesus and God had in mind, when it came to marriage. That's what I'm committing to. I'm not committing to you and marrying you with the ideal of the culture, saying like, if this doesn't pan out, I could always just divorce you. I am marrying you with the intent of saying till death. Like I intend to follow as best I can by the power of the spirit, what Christ said in Matthew 19. That's the ideal. Jesus says, if you're not willing to do that with someone, you should stay single. And he lists three types of people that would be single for the rest of their lives. The first group of people, he says, are born, meaning they're born with something that's wrong with them, meaning that something something biologically is wrong with them where they cannot uh, have intimacy. They cannot, they can't do that, right? Something Something's wrong with them. Um, the second is that they have been made a eunuch. Daniel's a good example of that. Daniel was castrated when he was a young man and he was brought to Babylon. So obviously Daniel was single for his entire life because he couldn't get married. Physically, he couldn't get married because of what was done to him. Um, The third category are people that uh, Jesus says have made themselves eunuchs. By the way, Jesus is not advocating that people castrate themselves or something like that. Some people have said that's what he's getting at. That's not what he's getting at. He's saying that some people live a single life, live like a eunuch, if you want to put it that way. They live like a eunuch for their lives for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Paul is an example of this, as well as Jeremiah is an example of this in the Old Testament. Jeremiah was told specifically not to marry by God. Paul stayed single for the rest of his ministry because of his calling and because of what he was doing in the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is, if you cannot accept the saying, if you cannot accept the ideal of what God is telling us about marriage, you should make yourself a eunuch. You should stay single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It's so interesting that Jesus says, not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it has been given. Hmm. And, and, and it's like, I, I've always, uh, it's graced. Hmm. It's graced on these certain people, right? That they remain single. Hmm. You know, and it get, it's like the idea of, I, I really get the idea that there really needs to be a seeking of God in our lives. You know, of uh, you know, I I know that if my wife were to even die, of course, you know, I'm gonna, you know, I'll, I, let me let me let me reverse, let me reverse it. 
many people in counseling go, hey, I was married before, I'm not married now, but I still want to have sex because I'm still horny. Right. I hate to use that term, but that's really what, 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 what they're they saying. Say. Yeah. Um, meaning they have a sexual drive. Let me put it that way. That's nicer. They have a strong libido. Right. And they go, because I have a strong libido, I can't exercise self-control over that libido. Um, therefore, I must be called to be married. Now, now the issue with that, and I know we're dealing with a lot of specifics and particulars, and I think the ministers out there uh, that that are listening, and I saw that uh, two of them, Isaac and Ryan, are are both listening, and we love those brothers, man, they're awesome. But I think they know exactly what I'm talking about. Is that when you're when you're in counseling, this happens, this comes up a lot. And thing is, is it's obvious that when you're married, you're usually sexually active, right? And so, it, it, you know, you develop a pattern in your marriage and you develop a, a sexual pattern, a sexual environment. So it's natural that when you are not married, that you want to be married or you want to be sexually active. So you're looking at getting remarried because then you could have sex again. Right. But I don't think that's really the greatest barometer for if you really should be married again. Yeah. Meaning you go, man, I have a sex drive, you know, therefore I should get married. There's many people that have strong libidos out there and there's no way they should be married. Right. Right. There's just no way we would ever say to them, Hey brother, sister, you, you should be married. You know, many people who struggle with, um, pornography, um, Compulsion, meaning they, they're, they, I mean, they're masturbating five times a day. Um, I'm talking more people that really have a compulsive, you know, where they're home and they want to view porn all the time. You know, they're, they're, they're just constantly wanting to view pornography. There's no one in that situation that we have ever run into, whether in the college, you know, high school, college, adults, whoever, whatever groups we've met with, that we would encourage them to get married because they are, in a sense, burning with passion. Right. And we would relate that burning with passion to this serious compulsion that they have for, uh, for, for pornography or for massage parlors or for whatever weird things. Uh, I shouldn't use the term weird, but just compulsive things that, that are going on. Right. You know? So... So it, it, it's hard to use that example of just like, hey, you know, I've been married, I'm divorced now, I, I should get remarried um, because I have this high libido. Mm -hmm. It seems like God, what Jesus is getting at is saying, hey, there's a grace here. There is a grace here, man. There's something beautiful here. It's a grace. It's God can give you this grace. It's to people who God can give this to, you know, and it's this this dedication to God and they're learning how to restrain my sexuality, right. learning how to just commit it to the Lord. And, you know, cause it's hard, even in marriage, it's very difficult to restrain sexuality. Hmm. And a lot of us as husbands and wives are, we learn how to, we're learning how to do that. That's a part of our marriage is learning how to do those things, mm. you know?
So I think a lot of people just jump the gun with that idea of like, hey, this is too hard. It is too hard for what Jesus is saying. And there's no way I can remain single. And and I think that's such a scary thing for so many people that, you know, they automatically jump to the idea of, I have to remarry. Right. And I think what I hear you saying is that so many people in the culture are trying to get out of marriage. And in the Christian culture, they're trying to look for reasons that are legit. Yeah. And so it's almost like we're, we always steer everything in our way. You know, we're always moving everything in our direction. So we're in the right. Right. And, and, and even remarriage, we're always stirring that, steering that in the right where we can't, even a remarried couple can't just look at it and just go, hey, man, this wasn't what God intended. Right. You know, at the beginning. And in that way, it missed the mark. You know, we always have to steer it it seems like in our direction to make us feel good instead of just going, man, you know, you know, there was sin there. It's, it, it always goes. And I guess my big point is that it always goes back to as human beings, man, we just struggle with saying we're wrong. Yeah. We do. Huh? Yeah, it does. And uh, you know, this, this kind of feeds into both the things you're getting at, which are such great points. And as the Bible says very clearly in Colossians chapter two, that there is no physical thing that you can do to stem spiritual sin. Meaning, if I have a problem with greed, the solution cannot be get a job. If I have a problem with gluttony, the solution cannot be eat in right proportions. Right? There's something burning in me, and the Bible says the only cure to that is Christ. Something something needs to come in me. In Colossians 1, that's what he says. This is the hope of glory, Christ in you. Right? Jesus comes in me. And that is what... That's the hope. That's the hope. Right. right. There's no physical thing that I can tell you to get rid of that. There's no know? principle. There's no like law steps or something. Right. And Paul, in Colossians 2, if you want to read it in your own time, just read the end of Colossians 2. He actually criticizes people who say things like, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. He says, all things concerning that of which the flesh indulges in but have no bearing on actually keeping you away from the indulgence of the flesh. Mm -hmm. So Paul is very clear that there is nothing physical you can do to get rid of uh, internal desires or lusts, if you want to put it that way. It's something that Christ has to do inside of you. He has to enter into our lives and he has to heal us. That's the only way it's going to happen. That's why it's a grace that's given to us. And if you think that the solution to my high libido is to get married— you obviously haven't been married before, you know, like there's no way that that is something that is going to completely cure your libido. If anything, it, it, it adds new problems into the equations and different ways of fighting. It's, uh, it's magnificent to be able to have intimacy within a marriage, but if it's, if it's, I'm getting married because I want to fix my libido, I'm not going to be able to actually love my wife or have intimacy with her in any meaningful way. So Christ has to do something in my life. And that's the important part and that also leads into what you're talking about with guilt. A lot of us, the way that we deal with guilt is we excuse ourselves. There's a, there's a, a show that I really like where at one point, one of the main characters commits like cardinal sin. They did something that they can't believe that they did. And they're just, they're just wallowing in their guilt. They don't know how to carry on. They don't know what to do. And they look at someone who's kind of a jerk and they say, how do you live with yourself? And the person looks at them and he says, just tell yourself that you did all you could. 
and one day you'll begin to believe it. And he walks away. And his solution is essentially this, lie to yourself. Lie to yourself until you believe that you're a good person, and then you'll actually think you're a good person. The Bible is a very different way of dealing with it. The Bible says, no, 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 don't lie to yourself. Admit the truth and see the truth of what Christ has done for you, meaning seek forgiveness. Don't seek excuses, seek forgiveness. Don't seek to excuse yourself and say, oh, well, there's mitigating circumstances and you don't understand what I've been through and you don't understand what my life has been and blah, 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 blah. Those are excuses. That's not a seeking of forgiveness. That's ex- that's a, a seeking of excusing yourself. And that's not the same thing. Forgiveness is coming for God and saying, like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? I have done wrong before you and there's nothing I can do to make it right. Um, then you can actually have the freedom to receive genuine forgiveness for God, which is Mm. actually going to give you peace. If you spend your entire life excusing yourself, you're going to spend your entire life excusing Excusing, yourself. It's it's the infinite regression. It's the infinite regression. Or progression. That's right. And people who spend their lives excusing themselves, by the way, never change. You can't change because if all you're doing in your life is trying to excuse your actions, how are you going to change? You've just justified your bad actions. Only the Christian who seeks forgiveness can change because they're acknowledging that my action was wrong, yet Christ paid the penalty. Therefore, I want to live towards the ideal. Yeah. Right. That's the only way you're going to be able to change. That's the only way you're actually going to be able to progress in any way in your Christian walk. Yeah, important. Let me jump to uh, just uh, a last passage, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It says, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord... So Paul here, this is how Paul saw what Jesus taught. Right. He says, a wife must not separate from her husband. Okay, so let's just, a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Hmm. Whoa. Now, what's interesting for me about this section is there's no escape clause in it. Right. There's no. Did Paul know what Matthew wrote at this time? I don't know. Hmm. But it's interesting that he doesn't mention it in this section. And he, he seems to be um, giving us a commentary on either Mark's writing or Luke's writing. Um, Luke obviously hung out with Paul. He was a physician. Right. He was on one of his missionary journeys with him. So did Luke break this down for 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 Paul, where Paul says if she does, she must, or if she if a wife does separate. She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. It sounds like it's vice versa as well. You know, so it's pretty interesting. I I bring it up just to say that that exception clause is really interesting Hmm. um, in there. It's, It's in there. There's different pastors that have different, very different takes on that. I'd recommend anybody to go to extremes to listen to one that's very liberal on it and one that's very conservative on on the exception clause of Matthew 19. 
just a different different ideas on on it. But it is interesting that Paul in Corinth, when he's writing the Corinth church, he seems to indicate that separation is something that does happen, but it should be happening with the idea of reconciliation, um, which doesn't happen a lot when people separate. They tend to just move into a divorce. Right. You know, and like you said, many people who do separate are already separating because they have something else going on or someone else going on. Right. You know, so is there anything you want to mention uh, mention about that passage in Corinth? No, I, th- I think you nailed it. I mean, that's just, yeah, it is. It is one of these issues. There's 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 a couple of them in the Bible where, you know, we as as people, as human beings, we want that black and white, you know, we want that thou shalt or that shalt not yeah. commandment from God, where it's just very, very clear and there is no ambiguity. And we just point to it and say, right or wrong. You know, we, we really, really want that. The only real black and white that we seem to be getting from these passages is that divorce is not a part of God's original intent. That it's not good. Uh, no matter how it's happening, it's just not a good thing. It's allowable, but it's not a good thing. Um, yeah, divorce on any stretch doesn't magnify or glorify the Lord. That's right. That's right. And you know, and his uh, yeah. and his attributes, but the the grays just abound, and I think that the reason why grays abound in this a- issue, as well as many other issues, um, like the idea of fellowship with non-believers or fellowship with believers who are in sin or things like that, there's a lot of gray areas in the Christian life. And I feel that whenever we try to make these gray areas black and white and systematic, I feel like it it distracts from what God is really intending. And what God is really intending is just what he intended for his old covenant with the people. And that is that judges preside using the law to help people in the gray areas of life. Uh, and that's kind of what we have in the New Testament of look, there, there's not really a black and white here, but we need to be able to be submissive to church leadership. We need to be talking to counselors. We need to be seeking uh, the most amount of wisdom that we can in our particular situation so that we can make decisions in line, uh, in most line, with what God's word says. Yeah, It's unlike, very unlike other religions. When you go into other religions, you go into the Quran, you go into Mormonism and stuff like that, they're very black and white. They're just like, this is how things are, and there's no real wiggle room here. Uh, Christianity is in that way because God intends his people to really think through things and he wants his word to be applicable to all cultures over all time. Uh, And that means that God understands that the concept of cultural marriage is going to kind of shift based on where you are in the world. And that's where these grays kind of come into play, Mm. right? The way that I discuss divorce with someone in America is going to be very different than a pastor in India or China or Africa for that matter. Right. These are all going to be very, very different issues. Yeah. And, you know, in premarital counseling, divorce is this is what we go over. We do go over all this stuff, usually in a premarital situation where we talk about these issues. And it always brings up in the recipients the heaviness of it, of, wow, marriage is to be that important Mm. to God. And. And that my commitments really matter in life uh, and those type of things. And so hopefully people that are going to get married really, really are 
they're really going, hey, is this is this really about me or is this really about God? Hmm. You know, is this because if maybe this is a selfish move on my part because I just want to have sex and I want to have that sex be legit. Yeah. Mm, you know, that 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 might not be the best glue that's going to hold together <laughs> this thing called marriage. Yeah. You know, that's for sure. So it's an amazing topic. Um, you know, we can exhaust or maybe we can exhaust this topic because it just keeps going on and on and on and on and on uh, for sure. But we certainly try to pick it apart the best we can with people. Let them know what we kind of bring up, different issues and arguments with people. We want people to get a really good understanding of uh, what the Bible is saying and the the heavy stuff it's saying. And, um, and some of those areas that aren't so clear either. And that everybody's got to get with God and got to discern you know, hey, what is the Lord telling you? And what is he speaking to your heart? Because we are to do things in faith and to trust the Lord. Um, and they are there. Having faith is not easy. It's a difficult matter, um, especially when it comes to what our bodies want to do. So, man, it's a great podcast. Really appreciate the time that you were able to hang out with me and take the whole time <laughs> and do it, you know. So yeah. thanks, Peter. Yeah, no problem, and man. thanks for everybody listening. We'll talk to you guys later. Um, <clears throat> I think this is the end of our premarital podcast. So next week we'll get back to talking about other things, man. I have this really cool article I want to go over on a podcast about transgenderism. Um, so I think we should hit that, man, next week and just kind of change it all up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So thanks a lot, guys, for listening. We'll talk to you guys later. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Check out runninglight.org to begin our two video series, Take Flight and Love or Lust. You can also send us questions on Twitter at Running Light or on our runninglight.org podcast page. Like us on Facebook at Running Light Ministries, Psalm 36.8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures.